And then I went on board and, you know, I had to take some time out in the toilets, actually, because I was taking some deep breaths because I was like, Christ, this is something else. This is the living environment. It's just something like I've never experienced because it's so small down there. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. As a restless and adventurous 18-year-old, Richard Humphreys joined the submarine service of the Royal Navy in 1985 and went on to serve aboard the nuclear deterrent for five years at the end of the Cold War. Now, before we start his story, I'd like to tell you about some of our fans who are helping the podcast financially, such as Liam Doyle, Sarah Ampolsk, Philippe Branco, Victor Osprey and Richard Orman. So, how do you join this select band? Just sign up to Patreon. For the price of a couple of coffees a month, you help cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. So, back to today's episode. Richard has just published his book called Under Pressure, described by historian James Holland as an utterly fascinating and wonderfully detailed insight into the hidden and frequently disorientating and claustrophobic world of the modern submariner. This richly compelling and hugely entertaining memoir brilliantly conveys the tension, huge responsibility, culture and of course humour of being a crewman on the nuclear deterrent. You can have a chance to win a free copy of the book via the information in our show notes, which will be detailed at the end of this episode. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Humphreys to our Cold War conversation. I grew up in Wolverhampton in the West Midlands, um, sort of late 70s, early 80s. And it was a it wasn't a really very nice place, really. It was the collapse of the former industries of the Midlands, like um, that have been linked right back to the days of um, empire, really. And um, I always thought as a kid growing up, Ian, in Wolverhampton, there was a sort of, I call it in the book, a sort of underlying tone of violence, really. And it was, um, I wanted to get out of there. I'd, I'd also had a belly full of education. I was quite an act. You know, I'd done perfectly well in my own levels. I'd scrape, I'd scrape through, but I wanted, um, I wanted a release really. I was very much an outdoors person and, um, you know, I was good at sport and all the rest of it. And I just thought, um, perhaps a sort of military career, a bit of adventure was, was for me. I mean, I used to go on, um, the families used to go on holidays to Devon when I was a kid. And, um, we used to go up to Plymouth Howe um, and then have a trip around the sort of Royal Navy warships that were were then were around then. And um, I always used to be taking. I always used to thought the ship seemed a bit rusted and dated, but the submarines looked quite. And it was the age of the submarine, really. It, 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 it had come and sort of taken over the role of the ship, and they were the sort of, I guess, the capital ships of their day, really. And I was always impressed with how, you know, they look fairly menacing. 
you know, athletic for want of a better word. And, you know, there's something, something, you know, about something, you know, I like to see Chrissy of it one, one minute they're on the surface and the next minute they're, you know, they're under the water. And I thought, you know, perhaps that I could, I, I could do that, I, I suppose, you know, and that, that's what, that's what ultimately appealed to me, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. There's something sort of efficient looking about a submarine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they just look so smooth and streamlined and, you know, they're quite, a, you know, obviously I know from the inside, but they're quite an impressive, you know, and they're, they're wondrous bits of machinery. You know, you can fit, you know, there's 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 space for a 140 people to, to, to live and breathe in and and carry out their their duties but there's also you know there's shoved in there there's a nuclear reactor nuclear weapons torpedoes and top of the range sonar gear and all the rest of it i mean they're 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 wondrous bits of kit really when i actually joined it and it's all i wanted to do when i joined the navy because you can you can specialize and i just wanted as soon as i went to the careers office it was like yeah i want to do i want to do that right and and was there any particular sort of psych psychological analysis before you could train for submarines well they do they not particularly i mean you do your basic training first sort of so so military training is split into three different aspects so the first aspect is 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 basic what they call uh, militarization when you know you as, as a body of as a body of men and and, and women you're you're trained to sort of act you know in the team environment and then so that's the first part of training the second part of training is 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 your specialism so um that's when you go to submarine school and then your third bit of training is 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 sort of the at sea training but there's nothing there's nothing specific to test your sort of um whether you can hack the sort of claustrophobia or the, the living environment because it's it, it's it's a very difficult thing to replicate i suppose the closest thing would be the um submarine escape tank training that i did in um when i was at uh, hms dolphin in gosport which was the the then um royal navy submarine school yes and you you give a, a very vivid description of <laughs> yeah. uh, of that experience it's a fairly um terrifying experience because i was about i was about what i was just 17 and a half i think so you know you know i wasn't able you know i i I was at the age where i could just about learn to drive i couldn't yet vote and uh i was stuck in this tower thinking to myself because it you you do a free ascent from um uh you do ascents from 30 feet 60 feet and then you do a fully pressurized ascent from a hundred feet where they replicate a um, submarine escape tower that's in actually in a submarine and they and it's a very enclosed environment you've got water rushing in because the water needs to the pressure in the tank needs to equalize with that of the outside to enable a hatch to open and then you float up and then you're attached to a pole and then you float it will not float you you go up at quite a rate of knots to the surface um and that's when that tank is filling up that is one of the most terrifying experiences i think i've ever been through so um it's not for the faint-hearted and you don't really know what's going to happen it's just over a period of time that they 
they do this and then and the, in in submarine training and then they do the escape tank sort of towards the end of the end of the training but that's the closest but nothing you can nothing you nothing that they teach at the school prepares you for the day-to-day existence of living in that enclosed claustrophobic lack of day well there's no natural daylight you're living under artificial lights um and nothing can prepare you for that it's it's something that you can either cope with or or you or you can't but you you don't really know what's going to happen until you until you get on board you know and, and and you actually go to sea there's no there's no quick fix to say oh you can do this or you can do that without without knowing what you're putting your body through and being able to um to cope with it really but that but nothing you can nothing can prepare you for that i suppose it's like driving a car really you don't know until you until you get in whether you're going to be any good at it you know and it's the same with going on a submarine and going out yeah. going there you don't know how you how you're going to react as a person before you before you go away you know but, yeah uh, i guess with a car at least you can stop and get out <laughs> so, yeah 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 no absolutely absolutely yeah well you know um, but that's that's the that's the great hopefully it's um hopefully it doesn't come to that but i i had a colleague who who couldn't um who couldn't deal with it a, a chap i'd been um in submarine school with and we both qualified on the same course and, and got posted to um hms resolution as well and he um the first time we went to sea, we have like sea trials before you take out, uh, before you take um, the boat on patrol. And he um, he unfortunately had a sort of claustrophobic uh, attack and tried to open one of the hatches um, and was quite physically restrained at the at, 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 at that point and was off the submarine. He was airlifted off the submarine within about an hour. So yeah you know but you never know you never know no. that was a quite upsetting thing for me obviously because i was i was obviously fairly young at that point and he was probably the closest my closest uh colleague and uh you know he was he was very laid back very bright young chap and you know he was the last person i thought would 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 do that sort of thing but you so you, you never can tell you know no I, I wanted to talk about resolution. So for the yeah. listeners that don't know, HMS resolution was a Polaris nuclear missile armed submarine. Yeah. Uh, one of four that made up the uh, British nuclear deterrent in the, I think it was commissioned ni- late sixties or something. Yeah. Yeah. 19, 1968. Ian, and then uh, they started the CASD, the, uh, continuous at sea deterrent which began in 1969 and obviously runs to the present day they were the polaris boats were in service from 68 up until about 1994 when uh trident then took over the um the nuclear deterrent so obviously while i'm here speaking to you and while people you know carry out their everyday lives today somewhat somewhere in the oceans, a Royal Navy submarine has been on continuous patrol since 1969, carrying the nuclear deterrent, no matter what the state of the world or the state of 
um, the situations around the world on a, on, a, on a war footing. You know, when you're actually when you're serving on the nuclear deterrent, you're you're actually as near as you can be on a war footing because you never know what may happen. And yeah. Touch wood. I'm 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 knocking my um, kitchen <laughs> table at the minute. Um, it's never been. Use, but I, I, you know, I don't think people, I don't think people realise that, and it's obviously the 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 amount of sacrifice that people have to do to have carried out all of those patrols um, across. The t- I think, I, and I think, and I think your your book really describes well the level of sacrifice, yeah. both on a on a personal level, but also on a on a psychological. Uh, level as well i've i've read other sort of submarine books but this is a sort of i i would describe it as a no holds barred description of the the reality of what you have to deal with on basically 10 weeks completely isolated well almost completely isolated from the world yeah no absolutely and you're on you're on your own really i mean you you're with a group of men but um and obviously now there's 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 women on the on the on submarines, but but then it was just it was just uh, men and and you know the things that you, it, it, you're in a collective group of people and you're member and you're a member of a sort of you know an elite team of submariners, but the actual day to day mental aspect is a very individual. It's both collective, but the 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 job, but the mental survival is. Um, and the, and the mental well-being is very much of, of an individual aspect, and how each each person copes with that, and how I, you know, how I cope with it. I hope I've sort of relayed relayed in the book by by basically trying to keep myself um, busy, you know, having interests outside of outside of the day job, and you know how we entertained ourselves on 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 board. I suppose I wanted to portray the, you know. We all we've, we all know about the hunt for Red October. Um, One of my favourite films, Richard. Yeah, I, I know yeah. it, it, it's uh, accuracy as to what life is like yeah, at a but, submarine know, is questionable. You know, we, all know, we all know what Sean, Cor- Sean Connery's character is about, but I sort of wanted to portray the you know the guy sitting behind him at the, on the console, yeah, and how, and how he got through the day. You know, that was what I wanted to sort of portray and how sort of difficult uh, difficult it, it, an environment it, it it can be you know and it's it's um yeah it's, and i think i think you 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 cover that really well and uh, yeah I, you know i, I do rec- recommend the book for people to buy uh if you are not a competition winner now presumably you were vetted to make sure you weren't a covert cnd member before yeah no absolutely yeah so you get vetted i got vetted after completing training at um uh, gospel i was sent up to an office in london and uh i'll never forget i was sitting in the side room and i heard these sort of um these chaps footsteps walking towards me and i thought my god my god what's going to happen here this sort of middle-aged chap poked his head around the room and i'm you know i'm pretty sure they're members of actual you know the sort of administrative administrative side of the security services and i got asked a number of questions about um 
uh, you know, sexuality, uh, uh, political views, you know, whether I like to flutter on the GGs, you know, it's all these questions are all sort of put together to see if you're open to um, uh, blackmail or, or, or bribery or, or what have you, because obviously, you know, yeah. nobody, nobody knew what the on, on the ground sort of Russian intelligence operation was at that, uh, at, at that point. And obviously getting hold of a submariner or the nuclear deterrent might have been a, very much the Soviets probably wanted to do that, but um, so we had to get we had, we all had to get vetted, and it was you know it was quite a tough sort of an hour an hour and a half interview when you're dealing with a complete stranger who's asking you fairly pertinent questions about um, your everyday existence, and you know I had a I have a I, on my my mother's side from uh, my mother's side of the family. A, 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 Irish Catholic from from the south. There was all the troubles with them, um, you know. The troubles were at the height in, in in Northern Ireland at that point. So I obviously had views on 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 that. And um, you know, my grandfather came over from from Ireland in the in the nineteen um, in the forties and fifties and, and and worked very hard. And you know, so there was there, there, there was there was that, and obviously, you know, your your politics is another thing, and then your your sexuality, and you know, and it's quite difficult when you're at a young age and in being fired all these questions out that that a you've probably never thought about. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, and B, you have to give sort of, you know, want of a better word, grown-up answers off the bat, as it were. And then, um, you know, I didn't think it had gone particularly well. In fact, I thought it had gone terribly and... and, and and I heard a week later that I'd, um, you know, I'd passed, and then you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're immediately sort of classified to top secret if you serve on the nuclear deterrent anyway. Mm. And um, and then they said, you know, you're, and, and then I was given my draft, and 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 that was it, you know, and you're you're off to, um, you know, submarine as it were. So yeah, it was quite, a, it was quite, a, it was quite an, an eye-opening experience actually. But um, no, that that's really interesting. And what, what yeah. were your what were your first impressions of of resolution when you arrived on board? Well, it was, you know, just the sort of the the sort of size of it really outside the outside the boat. I mean, I, I got there in a sort of early evening type thing, and it was it was alongside the boat in sort of uh, dusk, as it were, 
um, and it was just sort of lying there. There wasn't any. I remember there was no wind. It was perfectly still. The boat was tied up alongside, and it looked just everything in the submarine base was geared towards that boat that was just lying there on the jetty. You know, it was like like you know, it was just lay silence as as I looked on. There was no machinery running. There were no sort of sailors or stores being loading on board. There wasn't any hustle and bustle. It was just perfectly still, as it just lay there in the in in the in the gear lock. It sort of you know I say I think I refer to it as sort of black messenger of death really because it was just like a huge leviathan just lying across from me as I looked on. I was sort of, I was very nervous as I looked over you know because I thought that well this is it now this seems a long way from from what I'd been doing at some submarine school and you know and then I went on board and when you first climb on board you just you know it's the sort of it's the sort of smell that hits you the first time Um, and and try actually trying to get down the initial main access hatch because it's very steep and then it sort of pushes out a bit away from you so that was that's particularly hard if you've never I know it sounds odd but it's particularly hard if you never been bought, uh, on board a submarine before just trying to physically get on the thing is <laughs> quite um it's quite difficult and then it was just like the the um the sort of stale odor um and then the heat and then you could sort of smell what subsequently was the sort of co2 uh, co2 absorption units that um that the sort of recycle the air back into oxygen and it was just so cramped as well. I mean, it was, it was the biggest submarine of its day, but it was still submarines are, are very much built for machinery and weaponry first. And, you know, the crew are very much a, a sort of afterthought. Um, and I sort of, I, I remember banging my head as I, as I sort of went from three deck down to two, to two deck and, you know, I had to take some time out in the toilets, actually, because I was taking some deep breaths because I was like, Christ, this is really this is something else. This is the living environment is just um, something like I've never experienced because it's so small down there. Um, all the say all the junior rate sailors live on uh, lived on three deck. So there's about sort of between 80 and 90 sailors just sort of tucked in with one one toilet to service their needs and. I had to go and put my kit down there, and when I first went on board, and that was it. That was extremely. Um, that was an eye opener, both to what little space and more so what little privacy I was going to have for the next few years, you know. But um, it was an odd thing, really. But it's just like you know, you're not, you're not, in it, you, and no one can tell you what it's going to be like. There, you know, there's vertical ladders everywhere. There's you're climbing through. Um, bulkheads and hatches you can't sort of walk past someone in a corridor you have to move aside you know if you sleep in the gangways you're always getting knocked by people walking past um you know there's a plus there's plus on top of that there's nuclear weapons and a nuclear reactor to worry about you know never mind the impact on space you know and i and i you know i was sort of do i want to do this um but then you sort of i suppose after sort of half an hour and then i was taken back into the control room i could sort of see what it was sort of all about but the initial um the initial shock was um 
was quite something actually. And anybody tells you when they first go on a submarine, oh, it's fine. They're just, they're 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 just not telling the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've I've been on a a few yeah. exhibition uh, yeah. sort of ships, and yeah. it it is amazing how cramped they are. I mean, I just imagine that the Polaris boats were were you know more more roomy, but it sounds yeah. like it was as cramped as a world war ii submarine no, it, it was probably bigger than that but it was like a you know it was basically a hunting it's basically like an ssn yeah like um i don't know uh hms conqueror that some the general belgrano in the falklands it was basically like that but with a missile compartment in the middle if you get my drift yeah. so it is a fairly cramped existence they have to accommodate the missile compartment obviously because it's the because um, it's the nuclear deterrent and you and you sort of never get used to it you know you have you know a couple of times i was at sea i was like oh god i might have a panic attack here but you don't you just you just don't think about it and then you shut it you shut it off and i used to try and i used to try and find spaces where i could just sit in alone if you know what i mean if it wasn't my bunk i'd be in the sonar console space that deals that has all the machinery that calls the sonars and all the um all of that and that used to be on on one deck just forward of the um sound room and i used to spend a lot of time in there just doing like um i did a couple of a levels correspondence courses so i used to spend a bit of time in there the the electronic warfare shack where i used to keep watch if we were going to periscope depth um, that used to be a good place just to get some just to get some time on your own or whatever. Um, and then obviously my bunk, but um, it was how you faced it really. And just sort of uh, got into a, try and get into a, um, try and get into a routine. But it, yeah, it is a, you know, it, it, it was big in terms of submarines at that point, but it was, you know, it was still a very, but it was only cause like they, there was an extra bit for the missile compartment, but you didn't really hang around in there much um unless i was keeping fit or or traversing from you have to go through the missile compartment to get after the submarine you see so i'd go through there and especially when i was doing my um, dolphins qualification i'd then go back after the reactor and the maneuvering room um but it is a you know and you've got other areas like the galley for instance with the chefs trying to make all those meals for you know enough 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 food to feed a crew of a you know 140 odd with three meals a day in a sort of confined space of no more than sort of 15 to 20 square feet of 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 of, of room you know so it is a it's a and i wanted to portray that Ian, because i don't think i don't think people have you know there's there've been a lot of books about you know other aspects of, of 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 the military but i don't think there's been a sort of there's been plenty of books written about say submarine tactics or submarine warfare or you know cold war operations and all the rest of it but i don't think there's been my book i wanted to be you know i want it to be a sort of raw real life visceral but not too visceral account of how of how you survive on a on a you know by day by yeah. week by month and i think you you've captured that that really well i it you know it it is fascinating from that point of view because it, yeah. it really illuminates the 
the strain and how you cope with that i mean you know 10 weeks with no daylight in yeah. cram- cramped quarters with yeah. um no communication really with the outside world yeah i mean anything could have happened you know and we don't obviously you get you have family grams that are sent sort of every week that your next of kin is allowed to transmit well not they're they're allowed to write uh 40 words which is then transmitted by um hms northwood uh which is uh where submarine command operations are and 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 uh, still are, I believe, just at the, near Watford on the top of the Metropolitan Line. Um, takes hours to get there on the underground. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they they send they send the messages um, once a week, but you know that's getting ripped off by guys in the you know in the that comes through to the wireless room and the radio operators, you know, rip it off and they probably read it first. It then goes to the captain if there's any, if there's any sort of bad news, because bad news is not, is then not passed on. If there are any bad news, it's sort of withheld to the end of the patrol and, um, you know, people are given, you know, really bad news as we're re-entering into you know, just shy of getting into port, really, if anything has happened to family or loved ones, because you obviously can't affect the, you know, the patrol aims, as it were. That's what used to happen. But that's the only sort of communication we had, you know. My my father just used to (laughs) send me the football results, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but what else can you put, you know? Yeah, yeah. Didn't really want to know whether he'd done the gardening or taken the dog for a walk, <laughs> <laughs> you know? or he'd yeah. oh, wash, oh, wash the car today. Took the dog for a walk. Not interested there. How did Villa get on? It's just like yeah, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but you know, but each to their own. And of course, the ma- the married guys were, you know, it was their one moment of the week because their wives or whatever, it's, their their wives would send them. Um, send them a message, you know, and I, I, I sort of alluded, you know, they, they used to carry it around with them in their sort of top pocket for a couple of days because it was their, it was their way of coping with, you know, being away from home and stuff, you know, and it's, you know, a lot of people see the similarities between sort of space travel and submarine travel because you have to make your own air to breathe and all the rest, the rest of it has to be sort of self, self-sustaining. But, you know, when you're traveling, when you're on the International Space Station traveling, you know, you're orbiting the Earth every sort of 90 minutes. You're seeing yeah. wonderful vistas of 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 the world below. But, you know, in a submarine, you you know, you're 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 looking at the stoker and his overalls for. Uh, <laughs> for um, yeah, it's a totally different thing. And I wanted to yeah, I just wanted to talk about that side of it, really, because I thought that would. Another sort of an interesting aspect of of how it is to to just live day by day really i guess yeah no no that it and it is it is really that really was my sort interesting of, that was my sort of you know and hopefully with a you know hopefully a couple of entertaining stories and all the rest of it oh there the, there are entertaining stories in there <laughs> I, I can assure i can assure people there's um some interesting ones about a couple of well a number of visits you had with uh various vips isn't there yeah. richard yeah, no, we yeah we used to have a, so it was usually before we went on patrol and then when we came back we 
we poss- we possibly have a a um a VIP coming in or whatever. But um yeah, we used to have so we had uh, our our uh, sort of our marine engineering officer who's the, who's who's referred to as the MEO was a he was in charge of the nuclear reactor and I suppose after the after the captain and the XO, he's probably the most, imp- along with the coxswain, he's probably the most important um, figure on board because he's he's obviously in charge of the um, the nuclear reactor and life support systems. But his wife was um, was worked in the theatre in London, and she used to get a few um, thespian types to come up and sort of raise morale and all the rest of it, and. Uh, um, a particular visit I remember is uh, was uh, Sir John Mills, the old actor who came who came up to um, to visit, and uh, he 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 was really good. We talked at length about his um, his World War II, because obviously he was in a lot of World War Two submarine films, you know, Above Us the Waves, and um, he was also in. Ice Cold in Alex, and we talked about that at great length, how uh, the director, I think he wanted to do, there's a very famous final scene when he's at a bar drinking, and they, he had to do about 10 takes with that on that scene, and the director wanted him to drink um, fruit juice or something, but he was like, no, we need to drink beer on this scene, and he he, he was completely legless by the end of it, and... Uh, <laughs> But he 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 was a he was a he was a he was a joy. He 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 came down. He loved it and had a a good look around and um, he he really enjoyed it. And then we had the um, we had a visit from the Queen Mother, um, who uh, that was a bit of a nightmare for myself because I I was I was a quartermaster at that time. So a quartermaster on a submarine is just uh, deals with he basically in charge of the sort of external security of the submarine both safety wise making sure the draft marks are the same so we're not in fact sinking alongside and um with the sentry on board in charge of like making sure nobody gets on and i have the i had this sort of daily lists of the day of who was uh, allowed on board and it's obviously very stringent um for the nuclear deterrent for example if i don't know flag officer submarines had turned up and he wasn't on the list he would not get on board it was as it was as simple as that and um so I, but, but my other role as qm if we had a, a vip visit i would I, I would almost always be the door opener and would pipe if it was a, a flag officer rank i would pipe them aboard and off the ship so the Queen Mother, I was told, under no circumstances are you to open the door until the car has come to a complete halt. And um, so I was next to the car and it came up alongside. She's about to, she, I think she's ready to get out. And then for some unknown reason, I, got, I, I grabbed hold of the handle and the car kept moving. So I found myself in the position of running alongside looking at the Queen Mother with horror on my face. And she, she just stared straight ahead. It must have been about 30 feet, I think. And then the car came to a halt. I opened it. She said, thank you. And I just basically went bright red and stared at the floor. And uh, I looked up and the um, coxswain was mumbling something under his, uh, under his <laughs> breath, going redder and redder by the minute. Um, 
So yeah, so I had to I had to do some uh, I had to do some fairly good excuses for why I'd cocked that up. And then we had a visit from um, Margaret Thatcher, who was I think it was her second visit to Resolution. Actually, she she'd been before, but she was her usual sort of hustle and bustle, and she was in up the stairs, down the stairs, you know, around everywhere. And um, I was just about to go and watch on. Um, on uh, as my my quartermaster shift and a mate of mine was was trying to get something loaded through the um torpedo hatch and um uh, i won't repeat what he what he said but they were he couldn't see there was somebody in the way down in the uh, down in the torpedo room and he could just see their arm and i was looking down i said i don't know who that is and he said a few he uh, the conversation started with oi and then the he started swearing his head off, and this uh, this figure looked up and looked at us, and it was Mrs. Thatcher. Um, said, uh, "Are you okay, are you okay, gentlemen, up there?" And that was it. We just, <laughs> so <laughs> he uh, ran off. I, I I ran into the uh, QM's cabin and laid on the floor, and then sort of um, I looked up um, a couple of minutes later, and I thought I was in the clear, so I, I, I got out, and then the coxswain appeared with uh, murderous intent, and I tried to make out, I couldn't hear what he was saying, so I just gave him a thumbs up, and he gave me a, you know, <laughs> you know more about this than you're letting on look, and, uh, then, dis- and then just disappeared, you know. Brilliant. Yeah, it sort of fun, yeah. but it wasn't all... Um, it wasn't all business. It was. Yeah. It was fair, and you had to have these, you know, the fun times to to get through the get through the days, you know. So yeah, um, no, un- understood. I mean, there is one more story in the book, so I recommend the book. There's a good story about a senior cabinet minister. Yeah. Um, but you'll have to get the book to uh, hear yeah. that one. Yeah. Who shall remain nameless? Yeah, I think I've got a good idea who he is. Though, but anyway. <laughs> um you know in in the book you also describe some of the uh you know the the train the other training you were doing because there's these workup trials aren't there where you have to go through various or be trained in various different scenarios before you actually go on operations yeah that's right you have to um uh, before we go to see um on the deterrent because there's two crews so you're obviously you've obviously been away on patrol you then come back you then go off and the other crew takes over so you haven't seen the submarine for um two or three months so by the time you come back you have to um you have to go through this sort of workup um and members of the sort of it was with the 10th submarine squadron training crew um who i used to <laughs> the submarine squadron staff i suppose who were fairly always thought well we all thought actually wonders we all thought they were pretty humorless and um <laughs> sadists in their i mean they used to keep us up sort of all hours of the day and night um so you'd have exercises for um simulating uh fire or flood or um loss of power in the reactor um and um you know a collision so all these things and they'd be pretty full on you know there'd be thunder flashes getting let off there'd be smoke bombs 
being dropped around the place um, to simulate um, fire because uh, uh, you know fire is the probably the worst thing that can happen in a in a in a in a submarine. Um, it's not so much the fire; it's the acrid smoke that can occur after the after the start of the fire, um, and they have to be. There's a certain way of having to fight fires because if you, you you know you're in a house, Ian or whatever, and it goes up and the fire brigade come out, they just lob loads of water on it, don't they? So you have a situation on a, on a submarine. You have to be very careful of, of what you deal with when you when it when it's you can't just drop gallons and gallons of water on a fire because you could that can lead to electrical malfunction somewhere else, and then you have a sort a sort of whole load of a domino effect and um, which can lead to other stuff. And it's just like um, you spend a lot of time in sort of EBS mass, which is emergency breathing system mass because you're on, you know, you're, 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 you're dealing with fires or, or, or what have you, or, um, you know, a lack of oxygen in the submarine. Um, so you have to put a mask because obviously you don't want a buildup of CO2 because that can be, that can be pretty catastrophic fairly quickly um and it's more about it, it and it's not just that it's that they're happening sort of you know you're going back to your but used to we used to go back to our bunk fully clothed with shoes on you know and you'd get a you'd you'd be asleep for about half an hour you'd be just getting into a sort of deep sleep and then the alarm would go off again and you'd be tearing here there and everywhere to put a you know, uh, an exercise to put a fire out or a flood out or, a you know, um, dealing with a collision or a reactor incident or, you know, and this is pretty solid for about a week. So after that, you've just had a, you've, 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 you've probably had enough of everyone at this point, you know, <laughs> crewmates, <laughs> the people from the submarine squadron. Um, but, it, you know, it, there, you know, there's a means to an end, and obviously that, you know, it's you, you do feel, you feel back. I suppose it's to get everybody back in the swing, you know. Um, yeah. Because you've been away, because you've been away, and the other crew have taken over the boat. Um. So that's, but it's all, it's all dealing with sort of emergencies, and then you test the sort of, you know, you test that all the afterplanes and foreplanes are working correctly, and they can they can deal with failures and right themselves. So you get a, they call it angles and dangles, where you put the submarine can go in a sort of twenty to twenty five degree dive or going backwards. I wouldn't recommend that going backwards in a submarine. It's like you imagine if you're in a plane coming into land and you're in in fact landing backwards. That's what it's like going down on a submarine the wrong way. Um, and we do all of that just to make sure everything's um, working correctly. But um, it's a fairly full-on experience, and it's it go, and you're doing six hours on, six hours off. So if you're doing, if you're six hours off, uh, uh, are constantly being broken up by um, emergencies, you're not going to get much sleep, and then you're straight back onto six hours, six hours on. So that's that's twelve hours of the day just gone. And then you you start again. So we were lucky if we got sort of three or four hours sleep a night, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you end up you end up um, you end up pretty shattered when you go back into uh, go back into port. But I can see the important and the, obviously the importance of it because 
obviously fighting an emergency should be obviously second nature to everyone um and that's what it became and obviously the the way the the way they're dealing with that is to avoid the um avoid unnecessary panic if something did go wrong so it's dealt with professionally as quickly as possible because it becomes second nature mm. which is very important in a submarine because you can't have panic you can't have um somebody not knowing what to do at any given point in an emergency situation um because that's why you know a, a submariner knows um their own job very well but they know bits of everyone else's job as well that's why they wear the dolphins because they can do if they're the closest point to an emergency they should be able to deal with it no matter what that emergency is whether it's a fire or a flood or a you know a high pressure air burst or a hydraulic failure or a hydraulic burst you know they should have a, a sort of basic understanding of the valves and that they have to isolate to stop something from getting worse and you have to have complete faith in in your fellow crewmates that they can do that they can't just run off and look for somebody look for the chief engineer who's in fact you know in bed asleep they have to be able to deal with it themselves yeah. and you know that's 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 what being a submariner is all about okay okay what what was it like going through the the weapon system readiness tests so th- this is for for listeners that that aren't necessarily familiar th- this is a test around the launch of the nuclear missiles yeah so we get one sort of uh probably about one a week um if not like one every 10 days or whatever. So, um, and then, so what happens is that the, um, you, you get, you'd receive a firing signal from, from again, uh, northward. So the first you hear about it is you hear a, you hear a broadcast saying XO Weo wireless office, and then they go to the, and, and they rip off the signal. And it still happens today on Trident. They rip off the signal. And then they bring it back and then through various coding books, um, they have to uh, decode that with the captain there as well. And then it's pretty clear that it's um, either an exercise or a launch. And then it's obviously it comes over the speaker that it's an exercise. And then up to that point, every time you hear that 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 warning, you don't know whether it's the real thing or not. I don't know. You don't know. It could be, you know, set condition 2SQ for missile launch could easily be the command. But, you know, hopefully it's like set condition 1SQ or 2SQ for for exercise, you know, um, readiness test. But up until that point, you just don't know. And obviously that's that's not the greatest feeling in the world, particularly at that point, you know, when the Cold War was you know, the Cold War was still very hot and nuclear, you know, nuclear confrontation seemed, you know, fairly imaginable in that time with everything that was going on in the world. You know, the Russians were in Afghanistan. There was an arms race that that no one could really fund or pay for. Nobody knew. Yeah. Then, you know, obviously you sort of breathed a sigh of relief when it was made plain. It was an exercise. Then you go to the... Um, you go to launch depth and um, 
the submarine actually hovers, so we had a hover pump, um, and then the missile. You know, you go through the exercise of um, spinning up, spinning up each missile, and and um, the Wio would pull his trigger in the missile center, and you know, the, the exercise would be um, would be complete. But if it had been the real thing, it wouldn't have been any different, you know, and. You and know, and how did you feel? I mean, what have your views changed on nuclear deterrence or or? No, not know? really. No, I think I think you know because I lived I, I I I sort of slept within fifty feet of more weaponry, more explosive power than weaponry than all the bombs dropped in World War Two. I you know it was just too abhorrent to think about really. So I didn't really give it. If you're talking, if you you look at it on, on on those sort of levels, it's just too abhorrent to think about. So I sort of got through it by not even thinking about it really, and hope you know, and, and believing that no one would would want to inflict that harm on anyone else really. So and, and because obviously you're committing uh, mutually assured destruction. So I, uh, you know, that's how I got through it by by thinking it was it was too even. Not farcical, but too too sensational to really think about it, um, and that's what I feel about it today. I, 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 you know, and obviously the signal's never been given, and, I, and my personal view is I, I doubt very much that it would ever be given. If we used it anyway as a second, we'd only ever use it as a second strike, then our country would have been destroyed already. So that's the thing to think about. It. It'd be like, well, what's the what, what's the point? But whether it's made us a safer place is, 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 you know, very much open to debate. You know, we've, we've seen to have got ourselves embroiled in wars that we don't really, you know, the Russians went into Afghanistan and, you know, they had a terrible time. And then like 20 years later, we're in there and having much this, much the same fate. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's made us a safer country with all the, um, all the wars that we've seen to have been embroiled in and, and conflicts. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the one side. But the other side, would I do it again? Yes, I would, you know, at the drop of a hat because of the because of the camaraderie, the times, the, you know, the crew. It was it was it was fantastic. So, you know, there's 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 pros and cons in it, I think. And then you have to look at. The cost of everything, you know, we're, the country's in a bit of a state, and we're we're, we're all about renewing a, you know, nuclear deterrent that costs, you know, possibly forty billion pounds, and um, you know, does it make us a safer place? That's probably for others to answer, but um, yeah, absolutely, it's interesting because yeah. one one of the questions I was next going to ask you is what was best about life as a submariner and what was worse, and I think you've probably yeah. covered it in that. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In that just, answer. No, absolutely. So it's just the the camaraderie and the and the crew and the and the laughs, I guess, and the, you know the social side of it. But obviously, it's a serious business. At the end yeah. of the day, it's a fairly serious business you know very professional but i always thought that you know submarines it was you worked very hard but you you played very hard as well you know it's just like um i i did a quote from sandy woodward at the front of the book 
um, submariners themselves were regarded as not quite the thing, smelt a bit, behaved not too well, drank too much. They were regarded as a sort of dirty habit in tins. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's probably, yeah. you know, and that's probably not not far off the point, but they also are very, very professional uh, you know, men and, and and women now in the modern in the modern day. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, but I, I think if you if you thought about nuclear weapons too much, you would just got into a complete and utter state about everything. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I know for a fact that there's some. You know, we heard on the grapevine. Obviously, you hear these things when you're there at the time. There were some commanding officers who passed perisher who didn't take for one reason or another, didn't take um, command of Polaris submarines because they couldn't, they felt that they couldn't make that decision about the use of nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, that you, you're obviously familiar with the letters of last resort. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And, you know, what those letters contain appears, you know, no, nobody really knows, but uh, the, the, the essential options appear to be launch, go and find a friendly power you can take shelter with yeah say shells was always mine <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no i could imagine yeah no so we always thought that it was you know well it depended who the pm i or i guess was it's the first thing they do on a te- well one of the first things they do for a when they come to office. So I think there's been 10 prime ministers since the deterrence. They have all had to, um, apparently Harold, I was told Harold Wilson refused to white one, but when he, when he was a prime minister at the time in 60, 68, 69, when Polaris came in, but he subsequently wrote one when he had a second term in uh, between 74 and 76. But it's one of the first things that they have to do. I think they're locked in a, well, not locked, but they're in, Downing Street, I think the chief of the defence staff comes in with a, and they have to write the letter and they're sort of left alone to, to, um, to write them. It was, it was always that, you know, as you alluded to, it was either put yourselves in another power or depending on, depending on what the situation was on top. Or, or immediate nuclear retaliation or a neutral power or, or, or the other option was, of course was the captain to make his own decision which is probably the ones probably the one I hoped for actually because I'm not sure um, I think I think we might have just uh, gone and hid I think hopefully um, yeah because at that yeah. time well if we had launched there'd be nuclear sat- there'd be, uh, sorry there'd be satellites who would have picked up our position within I'm sure really quite quickly and the, the soviets in fact you know the soviets had a nuclear death bomb at that point so i'm not sure yeah i always found it interesting with the letters of last resort is that they were only to be opened i think if you couldn't pick up radio four over, yeah. a, num- over yeah. a number of there's, days or something yeah, yeah there's a there's a number of um there's a number of different things i i can't actually go into all of them but yeah. it was yeah if you fail to pick up um Radio Four for a number of hours, then you could assume that we <laughs> that we were at nuclear war. So <laughs> yeah, so that, that 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 was weird, but you know, it's just one of those 
just one of those things, I guess. Um, very, very British as well, obviously, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm um, listening to the Archer's Omnibus, so we should, we're obviously at Nuclear War. I can highly recommend Richard's book, which is an amazing no-holds-barred account of life aboard a nuclear missile submarine. If you'd like to win one of three free copies, then head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 84. This will show as a link in some podcast apps. And the show notes also contain documentary film of life aboard one of these boats. Don't forget, if you'd like to get that Cold War Conversations coaster and keep us on the air, head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate or click in the link in your podcast app. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.